coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. My personal Hendrickson that I'm pretty comfortable with is uh, nothing like a, a, a conventional Catskill. You don't see as many people fishing the traditional Catskill flies. I think the biggest development in, in my trout fly tying life was the advent of CDC um, and for dry flies and, you know, fish are just suckers for, you know, CDC used properly. That was John Shaner describing the differences between present day dries versus Catskills dries. Theodore Gordon, Joe Fox, Eastern Hatches, and the birthplace of fly fishing today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Share, share, share. If you get a chance, it would be great if you can share a past episode or this episode. If you have found some value in it, if you know somebody that would love a little history, a little knowledge, uh, drop on an episode. This is how we've been growing this podcast since day one. Share it out if you get a chance. We appreciate the support. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for swung fly techniques, two-handed casting, and anatomous fish. Find out why Waters West has built a cult-like following around their fly time materials and why they are the go-to resource for the OP and beyond. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash waterswest right now to check in with Ed and Kyle and get all geared up to get on the water. Today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks, a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash Daiichi and check out what they have going and check out these killer hooks. That's Daiichi, D-A-I-I-C-H-I. John Shaner takes us into the Catskills area and describes the flies, the people, and the history of these famous waters. We find out more about uh, Theodore Gordon. We discover how the Catskills are different than the chalk streams. And then we dig into some of the famous hatches of the East. And we just get the full scoop on the people, the places, what makes this all unique and so historic. Uh, This is a good one. The Joe Fox family story and connection also today on the podcast. Here we go. John Shaner. How you doing, John? Good, good. It's a rainy day here in the Catskills, Dave. Yep, there you go. We, we have a lot in common because I'm on the other side of the country uh, in Oregon, and it's a rainy day here as well. So, I mean, I guess you guys get some cold weather too. Do you love the rain or do you kind of hate the rain? Well, I lived in Corvallis briefly oh, in wow. the early 90s. Okay. So um, I know all about rain, both from uh, upstate New York and the far west. So uh, <laughs> That's right. What were you doing in Corvallis? Uh, following a, uh, significant other, um, uh, she was a professor at OSU and, uh, yeah, so long, long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's usually <laughs> the way it works. Cool. Well, we're going to stay in, uh, on the New York side today and talk about the cat skills. This is a topic that has come up, um, a lot. It's an interest of mine because it's one of those historic, you know, the cat skill style flies, all this stuff. So I want to Talk a little about history because you're uh, basically an expert in this topic and uh, and and go there. But before we get there, take us back into fly fishing really quick. How did you first get into fly fishing? Then we'll jump in the Catskills. 
you know, I almost can't remember uh, when I didn't fish and uh, somewhere there's a picture of me fishing in a bucket when I was about four. I grew up in the uh, Finger Lakes region of New York and I had, uh, I had big trout literally in my front yard. Hmm. And uh, uh, as soon as I had wheels under me, I was down here in the Catskills about uh, an hour and a half away and, um, you know, fly fishing. I don't know how I picked it up, but it's been in my blood since I was a kid. It has. There you go. So, yeah. so since day one, you know, just on the cat skills, I mean, what, why is it such a known, is it just a, because it's been there, everybody's fishing it for so many years or what, why is it the place that's known? Why? It seems like it's one of the, the biggest names in fly fishing. Well, it's, it's interesting. And, um, a big part of it is proximity to population, you know, and certainly the East coast cities early on, um, you know, very early on in our history. But what's also interesting is that it was not the destination it was until some of the other regions had um, become famous, uh, the Maine Lakes and the Adirondacks and um, parts of Pennsylvania, the Poconos. Part of that was the Catskills are just so, the topography is just so rugged. Um, they were hard to get into. Um, and there was no reason for people to be here. It didn't have the forest industries that Maine had, and it didn't have the uh, uh, the lakes and so forth that the Adirondacks had. So it was a little late getting started. And, and um, as much as I'm Catskill centric, this is not truly the birthplace of fly fishing in the United States. Now um, they'll probably be outside uh, my house with, uh, you know, with <laughs> torches right. tonight, but, uh, um, but I think anybody that knows their history will find that's true. The other part of it is, is that um, in the Catskills, there's an awful lot of club water. Uh, private water and um, clubs like, um, oh, the Brooklyn Fly Fishers and uh, the Fontanellas Club and so forth go way, way back. And these were all New York City and Boston and, you know, Philadelphia moneyed people. Um, and also uh, the proximity to New York City with a lot of uh, uh, writers and so forth. And once uh, travel into the Catskills became uh, easier and more comfortable, they could pop up here on a weekend, um, stay at their favorite club or hotel or whatever, and then go back to the city and write about it during the week. Uh, and I think that's where they became, you know, by the early 20th century, kind of became the um, the focus of fly fishing in America. The place, fly fishing and writing, right? That's probably yeah. part of it. There's been probably more written about that area. And then before we jump into the cat skills a little more, uh, so what is the birthplace of fly fishing in the U.S.? I think it was happening in a lot of places at a lot of times. Um, you know, you look at, uh, for instance, Philadelphia had, um, oh, I can't give you dates, but there were um, uh, shops in Philadelphia selling flies and fly fishing equipment uh, pre-revolutionary times. Um, and they were probably fishing the, um, the limestone streams around Carlisle and certainly up in the Poconos um, before, you know, Lancaster. Um, and at one time when I worked for Hardy, our offices were in Lancaster and Lancaster was the largest inland city in the country. And, you know, around Lancaster, certainly it's quite built up now, but around Lancaster, there were dozens of little uh, limestone streams and they were known for their brook trout. So, um, you know, you, you had probably had people fishing there, you know, fly fishing there long before they were in the Catskills. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's just start with the flies really quick, because I always love to go back there. I'm not sure if you're a big fly tire, um, but the Catskill style dries, right? Is that, that seems like the, that's the one thing you hear a lot about, but there's other flies. Talk about that. What were some of the earliest flies out there? 
that's a really great topic. And uh, in my connection with the uh, Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum, we uh, recently, a group of us went through the fly collections and looked at literally thousands of flies. And uh, we were given a real bird's eye view of the trajectory of fly development in the Catskills from, you know, very hands-on perspective. Um, it's often said that Theodore Gordon um, kind of brought the, uh, um, the dry fly to America. And he is kind of the patron saint and he makes a very good story. And he certainly um, did have an awful lot to do with that story. But, you know, if you go back a little farther, you know, there's certainly, um, certainly a lot of other writers that were, um, you know, were fly fishing and, you know, popularizing it up in here. But what Gordon did, uh, and it's, um, he uh, had the, the, the time to fish a lot, and he was a very curious person. He uh, got his hands on a copy of Frederick Halford's um, uh, book on dry fly fishing and corresponded directly with Halford. Halford sent him a, um, a selection of flies, which, by the way, are still extant, and they're in the Anglers Club of New York collection. They were very different than what was needed on the Catskills waters, and um, not that they wouldn't work, but Gordon found that a sparser fly with a, um, uh, with a stiffer hackle worked a lot better. One of the things about Catskill rivers, and certainly compared to something like the chalk streams in England where dry fly fishing was codified, um, is that on any given day or even on any given hour, a Catskill angler may encounter everything from, uh, you know, from pocket water to riffles to flat water to uh, almost anything. And, and uh, without changing flies, you need a fly that, that um, you know, will work fairly well on different types of water. Yeah. And Gordon recognized this. Interesting thing about Gordon, though, he was much more known in England than he was here. And by the time he died in 1915, he was more or less obscure outside of a, a very small contingent of Catskill regulars. Um, and it was people like uh, Roy Steenrod and Herm Christian, uh, and then a little bit later, um, Rube Cross, who really kind of continued um, the tradition of the Catskill dry fly. Uh, they continued to modify it. And in fact, their flies look very different than the, um, than the Gordon flies. Uh, but what's very interesting is that the leap from, uh, there's like three leaps. There's a leap from Halford to Gordon and then Gordon to Christian Steenrod. And by the time you get to Christian and Steenrod, it's the final development of the Catskill dry fly. Um, it really hasn't changed much. Now, certainly there's individual styles and uh, density addressings and, and patterns and so forth. Um, but uh, looking at the early dry flies, um, my benchmark for the perfect Catskill dry fly has always been Rube Cross. Um, but you look at Herm Christian and um, you look at Roy Steenrod flies and they're every bit as good, if not even a little bit more highly developed. And, uh, that is the final product. Uh, and those of us that still tie those flies, we're pushing to get that, uh, you know, that style exactly right. Gotcha. What does highly, more highly developed mean? By highly developed, I mean, they kind of reach the, um, uh, 
the zenith of what one would recognize as a Catskill dry fly. Uh, relatively sparse tie, a thin body, um, stiff hackle, uh, usually with wood duck wings and the tails generally of um, of hackle fibers. And uh, the Gordon flies uh, very frequently had either wood duck or mallard um, tail fibers, which tend to break and don't tend to float as well. But the Catskill flies are, are really marked by delicacy. And are we talking dry flies only, or are we also talking other wet flies and things like that? Well, primarily dry flies, but even the Catskill wet flies have a sparseness to them that you don't see in other regions. Um, I think one thing we have to do is separate um, you know, regional flies and flies tied by these uh, fly dressers that I've mentioned from commercial flies. Um, even today, the vast majority of commercial flies are more heavily dressed than um, flies dressed by a good amateur tire. And by amateur, I don't mean beginner. I mean uh, non-commercial tire. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Wow, this is cool. Definitely, I knew there was going to be a number of topics we could dig into. You mentioned a little bit on the style. Um, so we've got Gordon. Obviously, he was a big name. Uh, I mean, where did where did Theodore Gordon, maybe we talk about that, like where did he fish? Was there also certain rivers that make it like if I was going to go fish a dry fly in the Catskills, is there like a river that I could fish that he fished or more popular? Absolutely. I, I mean, Gordon's early fishing experiences, I had mentioned the uh, limestone streams in Pennsylvania, and that's where some of his earliest trout fishing experiences were. Um, and he writes about them frequently in his notes and letters. Uh, he's primarily associated with the never sink. Um, but he also fished the beaver kill. And let me make a point here is that early on, uh, when we talk about Catskill fishing uh, pre-early 20th century, it's mostly in the upper rivers. Uh, and by upper rivers, I mean the beaver kill above, uh, above um, uh, its confluence with the Willowemock um, and the upper part of the Never Sink. Uh, these are smaller rivers up there. Again, primarily private, have been for many, many years, you know, um, well over a century in most cases, century and a half in some. And he was fishing these smaller rivers. The big rivers, the rivers that most of us think of today, the um, the lower beaver kill below Roscoe, uh, did not become popular until the early part of the 20th century. Um, but yes, you can go and you can fish uh, in named pools where Gordon stood. I mean, that is a very possible thing to do. Gotcha. Um, and I've done it. And you've done yeah, it. And I've you could do that it. because yeah. you could just pick up some of his writings and, yeah. and figure that out. Well, yes, exactly. And what's interesting about, uh, as I said about Gordon, he was much more known in England than he was in the United States. Um, John McDonald in the late 1940s collected uh, his notes and letters. Uh, now, a lot of uh, Gordon's cor personal correspondence was burned on his, when he died. He was uh, uh, had tuberculosis, and the family uh, burned a lot of his um, his belongings. What so they do that what, for? Oh, just to get rid of it, just to kind of yeah. They were afraid of contagion. Oh wow, um, wow, yeah. And uh, you know who knows what other reasons. Um, but, uh, what's interesting is his correspondence with, uh, skews, uh, oh, yeah. his letters from skews were all burned. Now skews kept all of the letters that he had received from Gordon. So there's this wonderful correspondence with, you know, two great angling minds. 
And uh, John McDonald in the late 1940s collected what he was able to find um, into a book called The Notes and Letters of Theodore Gordon, which is uh, uh, it's a fabulous read. You know, it's you get the sense you'd really like to sit down and have an afternoon talking with this guy. Um, he had a, a, a an incredible mind, an incredible observer, and one can see why he and Skews would get along. So Skews, give us a little primer on who was he. I mean, I know he's a big name out there. Yeah, Skews is a big name out there, and I'm a big uh, George Edward Mackenzie Skews fan. Um, Skews was probably the greatest angling mind of the 20th century. You know, he, he's a guy that you wished he could have lived three lifetimes because of, you know, the things he was doing. He, uh, on the chalk streams in England, which I've, I've been very fortunate to have fished a number of times, um, it really puts it into perspective to see what he was doing. Halford, uh, Halford is actually, uh, was actually a friend of his early on and put him up for membership in the Fly Fishers Club of London. So they knew each other quite well. What Skews did was try to figure out, you know, how to catch trout when they appeared to be rising, uh, but they wouldn't take dry flies. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And he started to look beneath the surface. Right. So Skews was the first person that really noted that, that started going deeper. Not the first one that noted it, but the first one that really starts to develop and write about it. Um, they were doing similar things in the northern part of England, you know, probably a century before that. But, uh, you know, with uh, with the spider style flies and so on. But Skews brings it down to the chalk streams and um, and starts to fish, you know, starts to break the surface. Now, interesting thing about Skews is that uh, when we think of nymph fishing, we think of primarily fishing deep. Yeah. He was fishing very high in the water column. And if you read any of Skews, you'll, you know, uh, a lot of the indications of a take are visual indications. Oh, right, right. So more like an emerger. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, although he did doesn't use the word. Um, he's fishing nymphs that are just getting ready to uh, to emerge and looking for a visual signal of a take. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing about skews, people forget this, is that um, he was just as apt to use a, a, a dry fly as he was a nymph, and uh, his books are full of dry fly patterns. So when the fish were, um, uh, you know, obviously taking, you know, duns or, or sedges, cat, we'd call them caddis or spinners, he would certainly go with what, uh, you know, was probably the best choice in terms of fly. Yeah, perfect. What is, you know, you fish the chalk streams of England. Compare that to, say, uh, the Catskills. Is there any, any similarities? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the English chalk streams are going to be a lot closer to the uh, Paradise Valley Spring Creeks or some of the other Spring Creeks out west. Um, a lot of it is fishing from the bank, almost the majority of it, and almost all of it is to uh, to sighted fish. Um, they're very low gradient, uh, even flow rivers uh, with a tremendous amount of weed growth. The Catskill rivers are are you know we're in the mountains here. We're uh, much higher gradient. Um, as I said before, you know, uh, pool and riffle, you know, a day's fishing could see everything from, uh, from almost spring Creek like conditions, you know, through, uh, tumbling pocket water. So, uh, we have a lot of different types of water here and, uh, you know, comparing the, uh, uh, Catskill rivers to the chalk streams is a, um, not a good, not it's a, a good comparison. It's a far stretch. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. So that's yeah. good. All right. And, uh, 
obviously we talked about Theodore Gordon skews. I mean, there's lots of big names that some of us have heard about, right? Um, who currently, you know, is out there? I mean, you're actually, you know, obviously you've made a good name for yourself and I know, you know, Deddy flies, for example, is one of our sponsors yeah. on the podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. they've obviously got a lot of history. Who would you say are the people that really in the cat skills are still alive that are still out there that are kind of big? Oh my gosh. Ed, Ed Van Putt, um, is kind of the grand old man today. Uh, um, oh my gosh. Um, Joan Wolf. Oh, Joan Wolf, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, we've lost a lot of, uh, people like, you know, quite recently, like Art Lee and some of the others, you know, people of my generation and I'm, you know, not that old, but not that young, you know, we still remember the, the Darby's and the Deddies and, um, you know, a lot of these others. What uh, was the day? De- what was the day? De- Cause I haven't, we haven't actually heard that story yet fully from, you know, but what is the quick snippet on the deadies? What, what's the, the connection? Oh my gosh. Uh, nicest people in the world. My gosh. Um, I was going into their shop, you know, like I said, as soon as I could drive, I was down in the Catskills and, um, you, you would go into the, you know, the Darby's or the deadies or beaver kill angler, especially this time of year you know, early in the spring and it was electric in these shops. I mean, the buzz was incredible. Um, there would be old timers and young guys and everybody, you know, experts and beginners and everybody in between, um, the smell of mothballs. Right. Yeah. Mothballs was because <laughs> I grew up in a little shop too. Mothballs yeah. was the thing. Why is that the only thing people, because like others, other stuff that works, right? <laughs> the same feathers. Yeah. 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 I mean, I hope it preserved some of these people because I, you know, paradichlorobenzene is probably not the best thing to inhale. No. Uh, but, uh, you know, these were little shops. They were, everyone was different. Everyone had its own flavor. Um, right. and, uh, its own, people. you know, its own people. And, and, uh, it was, uh, uh, I've spent an awful lot of my life in fly shops, either behind the counter or in front of the counter. And, um, you know, you just don't find this anymore. Um, what is it that, that you don't, because I know, you know, lots of fly shops are amazing, right? You go around, they've got all this amazing, beautiful equipment and all this stuff. What is the difference between like that nowadays and versus you go back to the time you were talking about in the fly shop? Well, I was, I was in Ireland last year and I was in, uh, 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 uh fly fishing. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful modern shop. You could have, but you could plunk it down in Montana or Idaho or, you know, or anywhere else. And they're going to have the same stuff. Right. Yeah. They got Sims and they got the right, they got, they they got all the, all the right stuff. They got great flies and, you know, the, the flies are from the same manufacturers and, um, and this is nothing, you know, um, it's not a knock. It's just, it's it's not a knock at any fly shop, but, you know, back then, I mean, almost every fly shop was known for something different. Mm. Uh, somebody had better leaders or somebody did a floatant or a tool or, you know, and then the difference between the flies, uh, the difference, the, the flies that were sold in the Deddy shop uh, were very different than the flies that were, you know, that the Darby sold. And when I say sold, um, you know, towards the last number of years of, of these shops lives, um, they had a lot of different tires tying for them um to keep up with demand now now they weren't marketing the flies as their own flies you know and the bins would say tied by eric Lizer or tied by del Mays or or whatever they were very honest about that um but unless you bought flies that were you know tied by walt or winnie or mary or 
or Harry or Elsie, um, they could have been tied by a number of other people. Um, I knew that back then. So I was a little careful and, and look, when, when, when those shops were going, I had very little money. I was, um, you know, yeah, I, I was, I was kind of a dirt bag fly fisherman. Uh, how much were flies back then? Do you remember? Oh my God. They were a dollar a piece. And in Harry's book that came out in 1977, Harry, who's that? Harry Darby. Okay. Yeah. He asked the question, who the hell is going to pay a dollar for a fly? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, well, well, uh, uh, you know, a documented Harry Darby fly right now will get you a hundred times a dollar. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah so he's so, that's amazing and what was harry yeah. darby known for harry was uh he was a rack on tour of you know rare you know whatever he oh, was materials uh, or whatever yeah well i mean he could he's a great storyteller i mean you'd go in there and you'd feel like you'd known the guy forever um elsie was a little more business but uh harry loved to tell stories and he had a story for everything and and if you were there you know, uh, any more than a few minutes, probably the, you know, bottle of scotch would come oh, out of and, course. and, um, you know, things you can't do today. And, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate to have caught, you know, kind of the tail end of that culture. Um, the Deddy shop went much longer. And in fact, uh, you know, Joe Fox is still, um, uh, maintaining a wonderful tradition. Um, and, and, you know, I'll have to say Joe's a good friend of mine and I think the world, world of Joe. How is Joe Fox related to the, the daddy? How did that come to be? Um, Joe's mom is, um, there was Walton Winnie and their daughter was Mary. Mary is Joe's grandmother. So Joe grew up in it. Yeah. Mary is Joe's grandmother. So yeah. So Walt yeah. is, Walt is, uh, J Joe's, uh, great grandfather. Yeah. Great grandfather. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. So he's yeah. totally, he's, he's connected. Yeah. So it's just a different name because he's under on the mom's side. He's family. Yeah, he's family. And he, he grew up in it. And, and, uh, I have to say Joe is one of the finest fly dressers I've ever seen. Yeah. I've been talking to Kelly and, and trying to get yeah. Joe and eventually we'll get him on, but he's, uh, just hasn't happened yet. So I'm excited. it's good to have yeah. you on because you're actually, you know what I mean? You're, you're doing a lot of the storytelling, which is cool. You're, you're almost, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Joe's shop in a lot of ways is the, uh, and, and this is again, a, not a knock against other good shops in the area. But Joe's is is the closest, uh, you know, Deddy Flies is the closest to the original Catskill shops. That's it. See, that's what's yeah. cool about it. So that's what you, yeah. so Deddy Flies, I mean, not only has it been around, I think they're celebrating their 95th year or something like this year. Yeah. 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 So not it's, only have they been around for almost 100 years, but they still have the tradition. So you walk in there and it's not like you're walking into the, you know, the Orvis Fly Shop or whatever. They still it's have. It's not. And the way he chooses his products. I was... Um, I was in fly fishing retail for most of my career and, um, uh, you know, to go in a shop like his and see how he chooses what he carries, you know, is kind of wonderful for an old guy like me that, you know, remembers the old fashioned shops and, uh, you know, he's got great, you know, I don't want to make this sound like a commercial for Deddy flies, oh, yeah. but he's got great folks working in there and it's a really, it's a good vibe. It really is. Yeah. It's a good vibe. No, I love it. I think one of the, trying to think of one of the brand i can't remember the name but there was a um somebody that makes like custom you know gear essentially yeah and uh yeah. and he made a deadly flies like a, i think it was a, a vest or something like that right but it was just a custom thing and it was like yeah. you know you yeah. could probably only get it a couple of places right and so it sounds like that's something that they're into is all that stuff 
Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, just the, the fact that he sells things like Stetson hats, oh, you know, Stetson I mean, hats, right. I just, I mean, I just love that, you know, does he <laughs> sell the, what about the old English style? You know, those caps that you, the, you know, what are, I can't remember what those are called. No, I no. can't, you know, I, <laughs> the, I can't. the typical like, uh, English, right. Fly yeah, fishing. I'm the, I'm the only guy I know that wears a proper flat cap. I just, uh, you know, that's my Anglophile. Oh, you wear, right? you wear a, now what is the flat cap? Is that what a flat it is? That's what you're thinking of. Yeah. And you wear one of those? I wear, that's my usual fishing. Oh, amazing. Cap. There you go. So you got yeah, it. You got yeah, that. That's cool. I love fishing in England. And, um, so, uh, I've worn a flat cap for many, many years. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. And they're, I mean, obviously it's the caps are, I'm sure they're made out of wool and they're super warm. Right? Oh, they're, There's, they're tweed and you know, they just don't blow off. You know? Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. They, cool. They don't blow off and they're, you know, they're good head protection. Drifthook has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Their professionally curated fly fishing kits are crafted so you can catch more on your next outing. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos and easy follow guides. I've got the Nymph box right here in my pack, and I've been loving this. They've got everything from the tiny zebra midges with a little flash, or all the way up to their large go-to guide flies. This box has you covered for all conditions. And were you thinking Euronymphs? They got that covered as well. Beautiful Euronymph flies, all the key flies you need to get going, whether you're a brand new to it or a veteran, Drifthook has the flies for you. Along with their nymph boxes, they have dry flies, streamers, and all the education to go along with all these as well. These are fly shop quality flies, hand tied and inspected before being carefully packed neatly into these boxes. And Matt personally packs and prepares these boxes like he was tucking the kids in for bed at night. Cozy, comfortable, and just the right amount of love. Whether you're an experienced angler who needs to stock up on some flies or get a great gift for the family, uh, Drifthook has you covered. Check them out right now. That's Drifthook, wetflyswing.com slash Drifthook and use swing at checkout to get 15% off your next order. You support this podcast and small business by checking out Drifthook right now. Well, give us a rundown. So we got the Catskills and you've mentioned a few rivers. What are the... You know, if somebody was planning a trip and they want to go up there and stop by Daddy's and all this stuff and just kind of check it out, like what are the places they have to fish? Well, let's kind of go east to west. Um, you've got the northern Catskills and, and rivers like the Esopus that is almost a different world. Now, I've, I've fished the Esopus. I haven't for many years, but that's up in the northern uh, Catskills around Hunter, um, you know, in the um, kind of the resort area, the Catskills. Very good fishing. You've got the uh, that and the Schoharie, which uh, uh, Southern Catskillers don't get up to very often. We talk about it and we say, you know, we really should get up there because it is very good fishing. Um, and in fact, in the uh, the fall, the Esopus has a wonderful run of um, fish up out of the reservoir um, that, you know, some of these fish can get quite large. And that, that has a little bit of its own culture. And then um, the Catskills, the Southern Catskills really start with the Never Sink. A lot of it is under underwater now, a lot of the famous water that uh, Gordon would have fished. And that's because they've just built dams? Built dams and, and so forth. Um, and then you get to, um, you know, the Sullivan County Catskills, which is the Beaverkill Willowemock. And you've got, uh, oh my gosh, so much fishing there. And there's 
these are the real famous rivers. The wonderful thing about the Catskills, um, it's some of the Catskills, uh, at least the Beaverkill Willowemock, is how much access there is. Now, there's an awful lot of private water, too. And most of the upper rivers are private and, you know, held by clubs and patrolled and so forth. And you can stay, for instance, at the uh, Beaverkill Valley Inn and fish their water, which is a, an incredible experience. I mean, it's just very, very, very fine fishing. And um, it's a little spendy, but if someone has an, you know, a non-fishing partner uh, and wanted a, you know, a wonderful couple of days, uh, you know, certainly the BVI is a, um, would be a focus. But you've got miles and miles and miles of uh, fishing on the uh, uh, on the Willowemock, which you'll hear me say I love all these rivers because I do love all these rivers, um, and each one has a, a distinct flavor to it. Um, the Willowemock is some of the finest small to medium size fishing you'll you know you'll find in the you know water you'll find in the east. And by the time you get to Roscoe, now you're onto the you know what I call the big beaver kill, the lower beaver kill. And there's about uh, it's about 15 river miles of the beaver kill, uh, most of which is either open water or um, no kill in public access. It would take several lifetimes to learn all that water. Um, and uh, it's bigger water, it's big pools, but you have your famous pool like Barnhart's and uh, Hendrickson's and Cairns and Wagon Tracks and and uh, mountain and cemetery and on and on. Um, there's plenty of fishing there. Uh, I would say the beaver kill is, in, in a classic sense, it's almost the ideal trout river. I, I mean, just in terms of topography, it's just perfect. Um, you know, just, and it's so beautiful. Um, the beaver kill flows into the east branch. The east branch um, is a tailwater, lower east branch now is tailwater. Um, below uh, Papacton Reservoir. It's the narrowest of the Catskill Valleys, and it's uh, a bit smaller than the West Branch, but uh, very, very fine fishing, um, very low gradient, a lot of flat water, and extremely difficult fish. You know, if you really love getting beaten up by fish, you know, the West Branch is, or the East Branch is your river. And I, I, you know, spent an awful lot of time on the, uh, on the East branch. And, um, it's a very distinct from the other rivers, uh, that flows into the West branch at Hancock, um, Hancock and Hancock, you've got the lower river, the big river that has fishing all the way down to, uh, Calicoon. And it's a big river. I mean, it's a massive river at that point, but good trout, very good trout fishing. Then up the West Branch, um, I live on the West Branch at Deposit. Um, it comes out of the Cannonsville Reservoir. And the West Branch today probably gets the most traffic of any of the Catskill Rivers. I guess for good reason. Um, you know, we have a lot of fish here. But let me, you know, kind of quantify that. Um, estimates that I see are between 400 and 700 fish per mile. That's 10% of a Western tailwater, you know, even a mediocre Western tailwater. What we don't have are, um, we don't have midges and shrimp. We don't have the substrate for, um, for weed growth that the Western tailwaters get. 
so it's more like a, a freestone tailwater, if you will. And uh, I, I don't know if that's a way to put it, but what we do get is we, we do get good summer temperatures. Um, you know, uh, August, the water temperature will be in the, in the low fifties. So we have, uh, and there, you know, this is limestone strata. All of this is limestone strata. So, you know, our rivers are fairly rich. What we don't have is the substrate, you know, that that's going to grow as many insects as say a Western tailwater will. Oh, gotcha. So what is the substrate mostly in? It's mostly, um, uh, hard. It's almost like, um, like cobbles and, uh, very, um, you know, through, through the riffles and so forth, you'll get some, some weed growth, but not trailing weed. You don't get weed beds. Um, they're fairly even bottoms. Now the beaver kill and willow weemock, you know, they're, they're going to have more rounded rocks and so forth. But a lot of, a lot of what we have is bare rock. Um, so your insects are underneath and so on. Okay. And the, so in the willow weemock, that definitely is a, a name you hear a lot about what, um, it sounds like you fished that one a little bit. What's the, you know, is this the summertime? Is that usually the best time if you want to get some action? Uh, you know, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it's raining hard here today, but I was expecting to go down and find rising fish, you know, down in town here. Oh, yeah, uh, on the Willowy Mike? On the West Branch. Um, Gail and Mercer and Art Lee um, made a point of catching fish in the Beaverkill every month of the year when they both lived in Roscoe years ago. Uh, I've seen fish rising on the willow Weemock, and I've got a picture of art fishing, uh, to rising fish along a, um, you know, a, a, an ice shelf on the willow Weemock. Um, but the season really starts, um, it really starts about mid April. New York has gone to a year round open season just a couple of years ago. You know, traditionally April 1st was opening day and it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a party, um, for many years, it was a real party. Uh, we don't have that anymore, but, uh, by the time you get, um, into mid April, you'll, you'll start to see the first, you know, blue quills or paraleps or, uh, you know, little betas or whatever, and, and start to get rising fish again, depending on runoff, depending on how much moisture we have by the 25th of, um, April, you'll see Hendrickson's. Um, and Hendrickson's on all of these rivers, um, to me are the big hatch. And it's almost a shame that they're one of the first because, uh, you know, they're, they're here too quick and over too soon and the fish love them. They will bring big fish up and the fish are very hungry at that time of year. You know, there's some bugs that the fish just seem to like better than others. And the Hendrickson is, is maybe it's just the tastiest bug that they know of, but boy, they love it. Maybe describe that a little bit, that hatch. How, how long is it? And then how, what, what are those bugs? Well, you've got the Hendrickson and you've got the, 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 which is the female and you've got the male, which is the red quill. Um, they do vary in color from, from stream to stream. Uh, they're about a size 14. Um, so they're a pretty good size bug. Um, they keep very, um, uh, accommodating hours. You know, the hatches usually don't start anywhere earlier than, than 11, uh, usually around one o'clock or so and, uh, go into the afternoon. And, uh, the, the hatch can, um, like anywhere else it can, in terms of duration, depending on the year, depending on various factors can be short or long. I've seen them trickle out off for almost a month. I've seen the hatch over within two weeks. 
in 2012, I think it was 2012, they hatched on the 12th of March. Um, and we had about a week's fishing um, on the border waters that was incredible before anybody found out about it. Uh, I haven't seen that before or since. Uh, usually it's a late April, early May insect. And then the spinner is just as important. What's the spinner called? So, what, and what bug is this? What is the, is there a site? It's the, yeah, yeah it's the um, uh, ephemerella subvera. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a mayfly. Mayfly, exactly. Upright mayfly. And it's a very pretty one, by the way. It's uh, very symmetrical, if you will. A very attractive kind of fly and uh, really pretty fly. Um, but after that, you get the uh, the, the shad fly, uh, the apple cat, as people call them. And uh, well, and before we get into that, I want to keep yeah. going on the hatches. I want to talk. So the Hendrickson, I love this because I didn't, you know, Hendrickson, the sure. red quill. You got this cool. So, and the fly to match it would be some sort of right, obviously cat skill style dry. But would also are you know because that's always the thing you hear like okay, so cat skills in other parts of the countries. Why are people not using cat skills as much? You know, and and like because people love the. The Adams parachute, right, or whatever it is. Yeah, would that yeah. work there as well? Uh, it does, and and um, you know my personal Hendrickson uh, that I'm pretty comfortable with is uh, nothing like a, a conventional Catskill. Uh, you know, it's uh, you don't see as many people fishing the traditional Catskill flies. And and why why do you think that is? Well, I, I think it's just like anywhere else. I think uh, I think the biggest development in in my trout fly tying life was the advent of CDC um, and for dry flies and, you know, fish are just suckers for, you know, CDC used properly. Um, and uh, so, you know, most of my dry flies incorporate that. Now that's just me, you know, that's just me. And I can tell you that, you know, among my friends, you know, I have uh, buddies that swear by, uh, uh, you know, snowshoe rabbit foot, uh, that swear by, you know, uh, synthetics. I mean, you name it. Sure. There's all sorts of different ways to do it. There's all sorts of different ways. I mean, it's just ways. one style, yeah. right? It's cool because yeah. it, there's the history there, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's lots of stuff that work, right? I mean, a lot of people lots joke of about it, right? I mean, work. it's, it's not the, yeah. it's more the casting might be as much presentation as the fly you choose, right? But potentially. I can tell you right now, people ask me, how do you catch fish in these rivers? And, um, I boil it down to one thing, accuracy. Yeah. Um, everything that I do in terms of rigging my tackle, my approach, even my flies is all predicated on putting it over the fish properly. You know, generally these, these fish see a lot of flies. Um, they see a lot of dragging flies. Um, and they're not going to move too far to something that isn't just right. What does your setup look like for if you're fishing? Like if you're, let's just take us to the Hendrickson, right? You got this going. This hatches on, you're right in like early May. What is your like leader setup and all that look like? I'm going to start with the rod. I fish almost exclusively four weights. Um, I just find that that's about the ideal size here. Five weights, just as good. You'll find, you know, you'll find more anglers with a five weight in their hands, but uh, um, eight to nine foot four weight is, um, I do fish. Actually, I've gone back to fishing a lot of bamboo rods. Again, I started with bamboo rods. And in the last few years, I've, I spend a lot of time fishing bamboo again. Um, graphite's, you know, graphite's a better material, you know, it just is. Is the know? eight or nine foot depend whether you are fishing like small tight quarters versus long? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I get a, a opportunity to fish the upper rivers or the willowy mock, I'll probably take a shorter rod, but uh, you know, nine foot four weight 
graphite rod. I mean, that thing's, you know, that's a tool, you know, that really works. That's a sensitive and all that's part yeah. of it. Yeah. I do tend to use very long leaders personally. Um, to me, a short leader is anything less than 15 feet. And, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm not an advocate of, of, um, fishing light tippets just for the sake of fishing light tippets. I, I believe that, you know, in landing fish as quickly as possible, but in the last few years, uh, I find myself more and more having to go to, um, to finer tippets. Um, I don't want to say having to go to, but I think I'm having a little more success going, um, to finer tippets. And, you know, in years past, I mean, fish four X on Hendrickson's and now I'm fishing maybe five X and probably six X. And I, I fish six X more than anything else. Now, again, dependent on fly size, you know, I don't want to, you know, a, a big size 12, um, you know, like you say, a parachute Adams or big, big rusty spinner or whatever, isn't going to work real well on six X, but, um, um, but I tend to go finer than I, I used to and not worry so much about, um, you know, this stuff is so strong today, unless you pop them off on the strike, you know, it's, you're going to land him. That's pretty cool. Yeah. We had a, uh, did an episode with the, the trout hunter, you know, back to the other side of the country in the, oh, head, yeah, the Henry's yeah, Fork. Yeah. And they were talking about the one thing I first heard about them was their, their leaders, you know, the trout hunter leaders. Yeah. Cause they have, and he told yeah. the story, John told the story about how that was created basically from a connection to Japan and the stuff mm -hmm. they were using over there, this really mm -hmm. light stuff. And anyways, it was this whole story, but essentially, right. I mean, that is put them on the map a little bit, right? So people know, yeah. you know, for the spot, but it sounds like they're also light leaders are very important. Good, strong light leaders. Rich and John are very good friends. Of oh, mine. good. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, those guys. So, you know, that whole story about how they came oh, out. God, with, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And their, and their tippet material yeah. is great, but let me just throw something else in here that a lot of people might not think about. And that is uh, hook strength. Um, very few people think about the strength of hooks. That's right. Well, what they think is, I think what people think is now, just like fly rods, you can't get a bad fly rod. I think people are like, well, oh, you know what I mean? They're all super strong hooks. I'll tell you a funny story. In my very early years down here, we were fishing the East Branch. And the East Branch at that time, um, if you saw another angler on the river, I'm talking the whole river, it would be something to comment on. Um, we literally had these rivers to ourselves in my, you know, my early days. And the East Branch was just, it wasn't like crazy with big fish, but you didn't count anything under 16 inches. And the average dry fly fish we were catching was somewhere between 18 and 20 inches. And what species are these? These are brown trout, you know, and this is in flat water. And what we were finding out is that the standard dry fly hooks we were using. And at that time, that was a Mustad 94, 840. We'd straighten them out on these fish. Um, we would straighten them out on these fish. And um, in about 1980, uh, we met Alan Bramley, who owned Partridge Hooks of England at that time. And we switched to Partridge Hooks because they were much stronger. And, you know, this was a lesson I learned really early on. And I spent a lot of years in in Montana in the West as well. And, uh, I just hate losing fish to weak hooks and the idea, <laughs> maybe I'm, you know, shouldn't say these things, but the idea of trying to save a few cents on a hook, um, to me is like, 
crazy. <laughs> what? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Fish of a lifetime, potentially, right? You, yeah. Yeah, versus, yeah. And, you know, and what really got me thinking about this, not, you know, uh, I had a very relatively short and um, um, not very well-known guiding career. And you'd see, you know, using a lot of shop flies and, uh, uh, you know, and you'd see these flies, you know, fish would come off, you'd see these flies and the hook would be bent out, you'd bend the hook back, you know, it gets you thinking, I mean, how soft is this hook um, that I can bend it back three or four times? If I get a hook that's like that, I will simply not buy that hook again. Um, and consequently, I tie an awful lot of my uh, my dry flies on on relatively heavy hooks. You do. And what's your yeah. hook? What would be your hook you're using now for a dry fly? Um, you know, I I still like Tiemco's. Um, I like, uh, uh, oh, that curved one. Uh, uh, well, I can't think of yeah, it yeah. right and now. I'm not going to be yeah, much yeah. help but either. But that's a good one. Um, I've had good luck with that. I still use, I hate to say it, I still use a lot of old partridge hooks that I rat hold over the years. I mean, um, sure. Uh, yeah. And then when nobody wanted them, I bought them up for nothing. And, uh, uh, so, uh, so I still tie a lot on those, but, uh, I've tried some other hooks that are pretty good, but, but, uh, I tend to even occasionally tie some dry flies on wet fly hooks just for the strength, because, you know, you're looking at, uh, you're looking at six X that's testing close to four pounds on a dead pole. And you've got a hook that, that straightens with 12 ounces, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, come on, you know, right. something's going to let loose and it's either probably going to be a knot or that hook. Um, and which leads me to, um, another interesting thing about the Catskills is we can have some big fish here. You know, we have a lot of wild fish. In fact, the West branch is all natural recruitment. Um, and has been for many, many years. There was some supplemental stocking in the East Branch that's been discontinued. Uh, Beaverkill and Willow Weemock were stocked up until a couple of years ago. But um, uh, I had a very good friend um, who lived in Bozeman, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago. And he would come out every year for the Hendricksons. And this is a pretty accomplished angler. He would generally catch his largest fish of the year here in the Catskills when he was fishing with us. Now I'm not talking, you know, six, seven pounders, although, you know, they happen and, you know, they happen not only on, on streamers and, and nymphs, but uh, I know, you know, people in a, uh, who have caught seven and eight pound brown trout on dry flies, but a four pounder is not unusual. And, you know, once you get, I think once you get into that, you know, range above three pounds, uh, brown trout's a whole different animal. How does it change when you get above three pounds? Uh, you know, with the, with the type of tackle we're mostly using, you know, you've got some, uh, you know, you've got to have a little bit of skill on your side. You know, you can, uh, you can get fish that will, will hit backing and, uh, you know, in the bigger rivers with the amount of room they have, uh, they're not afraid to go places. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people when they hook a fish like that are kind of, kind of unprepared for it. You know, the strength of these fish is incredible. I'll, I'll put our fish the strength of our fish up with against any of the Western fish, you know, they're coming out of cold water and they're wild fish. You know, these are tough fish in a lot of ways. And, uh, we do have, what's, what's very interesting is we do have a, a natural population of rainbows. Um, the legend is they were, um, thrown in the, uh, in the main river in the 1800s off a train. So we have these, this wonderful population of rainbows in the 
you know, in the, in the uh, lower river and, and the lower east and west branch. Are they in the Wheel of Weemock? Uh, they will come up there, believe it or not. You know, these fish are, these rivers are all connected and these fish will move around. Um, the Willow Weemock is not really known as a, as a uh, rainbow river, but boy, you get one of these East Branch rainbows and man, these things just will smoke you. I mean, they are amazing fish. Today's episode is sponsored by Country Financial. The fires in the Northwest and throughout the West in, in the last few years have been devastating for thousands of people. Uh, those folks, some folks have lost their homes, their belongings, uh, and their sense of safety has all been challenged. This is why insurance and protecting your assets are so critical. Dalton at Country Financial is here, and he was on the front lines during the fires, handing out checks to Country Financial community members, providing drinks, food, and more. And each time Dalton meets up with a client, he does an extensive review of their current assets and coverage. This is his opportunity to really decide and let you know what you need uh, to make educated decisions for your insurance needs. This is a super critical piece, and Dalton Roy Roy loves it. He loves getting out in the rural community, connecting with people, loves the outdoors, fishing, hunting, everything that goes with it. And so I'm excited to be sharing uh, Country Financial and Dalton with you. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets and life are protected. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash country right now to get started. That's C-O-U-N-T-R-Y. Check out Dalton and support this podcast and a great local company right now. What is the, um, you're just taking it back to the, the thinking about the Hendrickson. So, and this could be just in all, any dry flies in general. So if you're out there, when do you know, like when you're on the water, you're, it's late April, how do you know the Hendrickson's? I mean, is it obvious or is that something where you need to be calling, you know, the fly shop and getting a, a report? You know, it doesn't, certainly doesn't hurt to, um, to call the fly shops and, you know, the Deddies for many years had a, a wonderful, uh, 800 number you called in and, you know, and it was just, you know, kind of a neat thing. Uh, they'd update it every morning, but, um, you know, water conditions, water uh, levels have a lot to do with that. You know, if it's, um, you know, too much water, too cold, um, that's going to put it off. But, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, stay on top of things. I mean, you know, Art Lee used to say that you could kind of feel a hatch coming and, um, yeah, you almost can. I I think that's just experience knowing, um, you know, the, the type of conditions that you've experienced before, but there's a, there's a couple of um, indicators that, that sound kind of crazy, but really, really, really are accurate. And that is um, when the uh, there's two of them. And I love both of them. One is when the shad bush, the forsythia is in bloom. And, and in the Catskills, they call it shad bush because traditionally that's when the shad would migrate. Um, or the old timers would tell me when the when the uh, leaf on the elder um, bush is as big as a squirrel's ear, hmm. you're going to get Hendrickson's. <laughs> and both of those are almost infallible. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Now, what were those two again? Uh, when the shad bush is in bloom, the, the uh, forsythia blooms, or when the bud on the elder tree is as big as a squirrel's ear. Wow. <laughs> the bud on an alder tree is as big as a squirrel's ear. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Okay. So we got two nice natural uh, cues. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, when I'm seeing Forsythia, I'm looking at the rivers, you know, um, and, you know, as, as these hatches flow from, from South to North, you know, they start in Pennsylvania, late March, early April, you know, you will see these same indicators. And, uh, years ago when, uh, uh, we used to literally chase the hatch, uh, from Pennsylvania all the way up into the Adirondacks week by week to try to get on it. So the Hendrickson, like you said, is the one you, you, it's short, but it's short and sweet. You love this hatch. Love the Hendrickson. Um, I think today, probably, uh, most of the fishing is done to the sulfurs, uh, and on the, uh, on the tailwaters, the sulfurs very long duration. And, uh, you know, you start seeing them in May and, um, uh, I believe some of them, I'm not a real bug guy. I'm, I'm more of a, I'm more of a guy that gets out there and does what needs to be done. Is there a bug guy in your entomologist or whatever in your neck of the woods, somebody that is out there? Uh, you know, lots of them. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny that, um, you know, years ago when I was younger, you know, you, you walked around with your, your copy of hatches or matching the hatch or whatever. And everybody spoke Latin. I don't see that much anymore. And, um, I've kind of forgotten most of my, uh, you know, Latin binomials, but, um, you know, I, th- I think part of that is just, you know, just me saying things like, you know, oh, they're, you know, little gray ones, size 18 or whatever. But I, I think that if you do know your insects, um, it can be helpful. But if you fish any rivers a lot, you kind of get into a groove. And after a while, you know, you know what's going to happen and you know what you need to do to get it done. But uh, I always used to joke there were, you know, th- three kinds of fishermen. There were tackle guys, there were bug guys, and there were guys that fished. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's right. So it's like bird hunters. There's gun guys, there's bird guys, and there's dog guys, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's right. That's it. That's totally true. Cool. So, and the sulfur is kind of a, another mayfly. It's a little bit like yeah, lighter yellowish in color. It encompasses uh, several different species that we just call sulfurs. And, um, the fish really like them. The thing about Hendrickson's, I usually have about two or three patterns for the Hendrickson's. I have boxes full of different sulfurs and I'm constantly working on different ones. I I just have never, and most of my other friends will say the same thing. I've just never found every time you think you've nailed it, every time you think you've got the, you know, you got it figured out two weeks later, they won't eat the damn thing, you know, and you, and you got to try something else. Yeah, try it out. Gosh. And how long does the sulfur last? Sulfurs on the West Branch um, lasted right into September last year. Oh, wow. And is that the same for willow weed mock or anything? Not necessarily, no. no. They're going to be shorter duration over there on the on the, on the the freestones. Because um, those are, it maybe make the distinction that the beaver kill and willow weed mock are freestones. Also, what I didn't mention before and, and, and missed, and I'm glad I remembered it, is that above the reservoirs, you know, the East and the West Branch and the Never Sink and so forth, above the reservoirs, actually have some very good fishing that nobody takes advantage of. And if anybody likes to explore and some absolutely beautiful country, um, you know, way off the beaten path uh, are these upper, the upper sections of these rivers above the reservoirs. Um, This is classic, you know, Catskill fishing. Um, There is plenty of access. You might have to poke around and find it, but it's all online. You can, you know, just go to the, you know, websites and find it. But uh, there's some wonderful, wonderful fishing for people who, who like to explore and like to get away from things. I have friends who come from Philadelphia every year 
they fish the upper west branch and they wouldn't go anywhere else and they catch great fish yeah right you get your little spot most people that are coming in and fishing there is uh, what are they doing where are they staying or is there camping out there what's that look like you know the, it's it's interesting not not many catskill fishermen actually live in the catskills you know everybody's everybody's from somewhere else and you'll see license plates i don't know how many you know states you could count every, you know almost every state sure everybody's coming so everybody everybody knows about they want to get this is a destination everybody's coming and you know a lot you know you can a lot of people will day trip it from you know from new york or uh um, whatever. And, and, you know, New Jersey, certainly on the West branch, you see more, um, Pennsylvania and New Jersey plates than you do New York plates, but, uh, accommodations, um, my suggestion to anybody wanting to fish these rivers, get your accommodations early. Um, my sister actually has a, uh, uh, a little, uh, cottage that she rents. Uh, she's rented this year from the 1st of April to the middle of September. And she doesn't advertise. Uh, that just gives you an indication of uh, uh, the problem is there's not much else to do in the Catskills besides fish. <laughs> so there's not a hell of a lot of accommodations here. Really? What about hunting? Is there some bird hunting out there? There is some good bird hunting. There's a, an awful lot of state land. A lot of the, the Catskills are in the you know Catskill uh, Preserve. So there's, you know, if you're a bird hunter, uh, and I was in my younger days, um, there's still some pretty good bird hunting, you know, up in some of the mountains. Um, there's turkey hunting, of course, and deer hunting. Uh, and, you know, we have a bear get in the garbage every now and then. Right. That's cool. And there is some camping, but you maybe have to reserve it ahead of time. There's quite a bit of camping, uh, you know, private and public. Um, have to do a little research on that. Uh, you know, I, I would say that, you know, the majority are day trippers. I Again, I have friends from um, South Central Pennsylvania who've been coming up for close to 30 years and they're having harder times finding accommodations than they used to. Um, you know, COVID changed everything. Are there any lodges out there? There, there are, um, you know, and everything from, um, like I said, the Beaverkill Valley Inn, which is exquisite. Um, and there's another, I'm trying to remember the one on the Willow Weemock, which is, you know, just superb. Um, and they have, have both have, uh, private water but not really any lodges per se, like, like in the West, uh, it's going to be mostly, you know, highway side motels, um, you know, in town here in, in deposit, there's two small motels and they keep pretty busy. Um, but there, there is, I'm sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. You've got West branch angler, um, at Hale Eddy, Hale Eddy and Dreamcatcher lodge. Um, and the reason I forget those is, uh, I, I, I shouldn't have forgotten those Dreamcatcher is relatively new and they have cabins and so forth as does West branch. And they're, they're both full service with guides and shops and so on. Nice. nice. So I got it. Yeah. I got it all. As we start to kind of get, you know, take it out of here a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned a few books, but what are the, you know, must have books resources that somebody should have on their shelf for like cat skills? Oh, historically, um, you know, the, uh, the Theodore Gordon book, uh, Notes and Letters of Theodore, I think was called The Complete Fly Fisherman. Um, oh, that's what it was. Yeah, Complete Fly Fisherman. Yeah, yeah. Sparse Gray Hackles, uh, Fishless Days, Angling Nights, um, really captures the uh, the earlier cat skills. And, and you know, it was a book that I grew up on. Art Flick's Streamside Guide is as relevant today as it ever has been. You know, still a great book, still in print. Um, Harry Darby's book about... Uh, Catskill fly tire, uh, is Harry Darby's book. 
um, is still a wonderful read. The, the, the daddy's book, uh, I can't remember the name. Okay. Yeah. Daddy's book. Yeah. Okay. They, they did one about 30 years oh, ago. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll get some links in the show notes out. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I can't, uh, you know, I've, I've only got a couple thousand books in my <laughs> library. <laughs> That's right. What is your, what does your library look like? If we come into your, is it, is this where you do your tying and everything in the one room? Tying is upstairs. Library is when, when we bought the house, um, my, uh, significant other, my partner, she, she collected pink, uh, Cadillacs, pink 1957s. Oh, like actual Cadillacs? Like actual Cadillacs. Wow. And uh, so, uh, city girl, I move her down to the country. So you have some Cadillacs around the house? No, no. We got rid of the Cadillacs, um, <laughs> because we needed the garage space for the library and fishing room. <laughs> there you go. So that's where it is. So you got the garage space out there. So I got the garage. Yeah. We shelved off the garage for the fishing books. Um, so if you come into the, the library, there's a lot of books. Um, but, uh, there's, there was actually a, a great book by, written by, um, Eric Pepper and, um, um, Gary LaFontaine about fishing the beaver kill. Oh, really? Um, and I think it's called fishing the beaver kill. And, uh, it was a, a paperback done a bunch of years ago and it's still very, very relevant. Yeah. I don't know Pepper uh, at all, but I, you know, LaFontaine has come up a lot about yeah. his, you know, obviously yeah. caddisflies and some of his other stuff. He was a super, yeah. Yeah. super nerdy, yeah. awesome, right? The guy, he was just got into it. Yeah. Eric, Eric became a Westerner, like so many Easterners. I, I tried that at one time I lived in, in Montana for a bunch of years and, um, thought I'd live there forever and then got, uh, transferred back East and, you know, um, wasn't a bad thing, believe me. It's not a bad thing to be a Catskills angler. How often do you get Westerners coming out, turning into Easterners out there? Uh, I don't know how often it kind of works out the other way, but uh, there's a lot of Easterners that became Westerners and then became Easterners again. Um, you know, the, the, the changes in Montana in the almost 40 years I've been going out there are just dramatic. Um, and, you know, I have to say this, that Probably, um, although COVID was kind of the joker in the deck, um, the Catskills have changed less than any um, area that I've had long experience with. Does that mean less pressure of people out there? No, no, it, it, it doesn't. Um, the pressure is more um, than it used to be. The pressure is, and that's true of everywhere, yeah. um, for a lot of reasons as access shrinks and, you know, climate changes and more people do it and so on and so forth. But the experience doesn't, I don't know if it's just me, but I, I, other friends say the same thing. The experience is still there. It still feels like the cat skills. Um, I mean, that's hard to, um, you know, to quantify. I mean, we're getting kind of a little metaphysical there, but, but Montana doesn't feel the same to me. And I, it's nothing against, you know, nothing against the West. I'm not saying that at all. And maybe I've changed more than it has, but um, I think I've spent enough time out there to, to, at least from my point of view, be able to say that. Um, I still get the same feelings in the Catskills that I did 40 years ago, and the rivers still feel the same. Um, the crowding is is an issue, um, but you know when I see how you know many hundred thousand angler days there are in the Madison now. You know, the last numbers I saw were 2017. It was like 230,000 angler days. 230,000. <laughs> well, how would that compare to say the, like the Willowemock or some of these other <laughs> Well, um, I mean, look, if, if you drove up the Willowemock and you saw 30 anglers, that would be a lot. Um, 
you know, now that doesn't, you know, now on a, on a good day, uh, on a busy day on the West branch, you can probably find a couple hundred. Um, but I'm still able to find, you know, there's fish everywhere here. Um, and I guess if I could give a first time angler, some advice, um, don't necessarily go where all the cars are parked. Take a little while and learn. Um, if it looks fishy, it's probably got fish in it. And uh, I always joked about how I, I always wanted to like chain a bunch of, of cars together and tow them around and I'd park them, you know, and then I'd go fish somewhere else, you know, because uh, if you park a car invariably somebody else, you know, it's, it's like a bear jam in Yellowstone, you know, um, if there's three cars, it's got to be better than the place where there's only one car. And if there's five cars, you know, we hit the jackpot. Um, don't necessarily buy into that. Um, you know, there are f- most of the fish that I catch in these rivers are in places other people don't fish. That doesn't mean they're secret spots or that they're, you know, that they're better than anywhere else. It's just I tend to get away from people and find plenty of fish. And so, you know, think of it that way. Um, use the skills that you've learned other places and you'll do just fine here. You know, patience. I will say that um, because we don't have the densities of fish here that other rivers have, um, I do tend to be a, a fish hunter. Um, think of the Henry's Fork rather than the Madison. You know, there's a reason those guys named their their shop trout hunter. You know, um, it's the same thing here. Um, I'm a fish hunter and uh, I hunt fish, you know, constantly. And, um, you know, to me, that's, that's very rewarding. And I look for rising fish. Um, and it's because, you know, as I say, we have a lot of, a lot of water and not a lot of fish compared to other rivers. Uh, now you will get places where the fish are concentrated, obviously, but uh, generally the best approach is a very slow, methodical, eyes open, um, you know, all your senses geared to finding fish. I can say I, I, I find as many fish with my ears as I do with my eyes. Oh, wow. But how would yeah. you, how would you find one? You know, just, yeah. just hearing, just hearing rises. So you hear a rise and then, then you, you pinpoint on and then you kind of sit yeah. there and watch it. Yeah. I, I hear something that, you know, uh, a lot of our rises are very subtle and, um, you know, just a slurp or a little splash or something that's not quite, you know, normal in the background can be it, you know, and gives you a, gives you somewhere to focus. Is there an easy way to tell a big fish versus a small fish? Or is that pretty obvious? I think it's as obvious as, as it is anywhere else. And by that, I'm saying that sometimes big fish can be subtle. Um, yeah. you know, um, you will see the heads and, and, uh, you know, you can often tell, uh, you can tell again by sound, you know, how much, uh, how much water a fish is moving. But uh, one of the very best fish I took last year, you know, uh, if I didn't know better, I would have thought he was an eight-incher. All that was happening is that flies were coming down his lane and disappearing. He was just, what was he just sipping them? What was he eating? He was eating sulfurs, and he was in a great little slot. And just as, you know, sulfur would get there, it would just kind of disappear. It just wasn't there anymore. And... um, you know, he just, uh, I won't brag, but he ate the first cast and he was a hell of a fish. Yeah. That's awesome. What was that cast like? 
what's your tip on the like for that fish? How did you? Um, yeah, I I don't want to give away much, but I will yeah. because you're a nice you sound <laughs> like a nice man. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I see one of the biggest mistakes I see made here, especially on the West Branch, is people trying to cast too far. Um, I'm more of a stalker, and I want a short cast. I want a short, accurate cast. Um, What's long? What would be a long cast? For me, long is anything over 40 feet. My average cast is going to be somewhere between 25 and 35 feet tops. Um, A lot of anglers don't realize how close you can get to fish in almost any situation if you take your time. How close can you get a fish on a dry to take? No exaggeration. I've had fish with my leader butt in the guides. Mm, you know take take flies you know um especially in the last few years our fish have really gotten used to anglers um and i'm seeing them be a lot less wary and the other thing is i'm seeing them you know we have a lot of boats on the water we have a lot of drift boats oh you do lots of drift boats oh gosh yeah yeah is that a new thing newer thing um new in the last 30 years and and really it's doubled in the last 10 um, so we have, we have an awful lot of watercraft and, you know, um, there's advantages and disadvantages to that, that I, you know, um, I float a few times a year, but I don't own a boat. Um, no, and I, that I doesn't seem like the cat skills, like we started, right? This is the cat skills episode. Yeah. It doesn't seem like I don't ever think of a drift boat in the, that, the same name as a cat. Skills. Yeah. Yeah. The Delaware system, you're going to see lots of boats. You won't see them in the beaver kill willow mock. Um, you know, I, that, that's kind of self-policing. I wouldn't want to be the guy that takes a drift boat down through Cairns pool. I just don't want to be him. Is it big enough to take a drift boat down? It's navigable water. You yeah, know? you could. And, but I can imagine one thing that would yeah. be kind of cool too, um, not to give anybody any ideas, but there's lots of small little one person watercraft, right? Yeah. That yeah. would be cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you see lots of that. You see lots of that, but, uh, you know, back to the, the topic there is that um, 10, 12 years ago, if somebody ran over your fish with a drift boat, you might not see that fish for a long time. They seem to come right back now. You know, they seem to have gotten used to it, whether that's good or bad. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take it, uh, if that's the way they want to act. Um, but, uh, I'm seeing them become a lot more, you know, used to human presence. So, uh, that works to the advantage of an angler who likes to, to fish close like I do. Yeah. That's a good tip. I love that. Yeah, and it, and and it is uh, like I say, if I could, if I'm going to tell people how to, you know, learn to cast, learn to use long leaders, and learn to get close, and look, that's true of anywhere I've fished. I don't care where it is, I you know, east, west, you know, Europe, whatever. Um, that's how I fish. Um, I'm not out there giving a casting demonstration. Um, now that doesn't mean. Um, that one shouldn't be able to cast distance because if you can cast distance, it's the same principles as, as, you know, casting into a wind uses the same principles in physics as casting distance. What was your, you know, I mean, I just, and I guess kind of had one last question for you. You mentioned the guiding, um, you had a short guiding career. I'm always curious about that because my guiding career wasn't very long either. What what was that like? And why was it short? Um, it was, it was all in Montana. Um, it was short because, um, uh, it wasn't because I was a bad guide, you know, it's just, uh, you didn't uh, enjoy it. You know, I, I, I have to say I enjoyed a lot of it and I actually am still in touch with people that I guided 30 years ago, but, um, uh, I like to fish more and, um, I have to say that guiding, I learned an awful lot about trout fishing and what I learned about trout fishing from guiding was how simple you can make it. 
because you have to make it simple for a lot of people, um, you know, for beginners and so forth. And uh, it kind of blew away some of my preconceived ideas of how hard trout are to catch, you know. <laughs> now, I'd been fishing a long time up until then. Um, but uh, I also, you know, found that it was a lot of it was very hard work. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not an easy job. It's not an easy job. And and I get a, I kind of get a, you know, chuckle when uh, I can't tell you how many friends here, you know, they, they buy a boat and, you know, a year later, they're going to be a guide. And then a year after that, they're not guiding anymore. You know, it's one thing to fish with your friends and, and so forth. But when it's complete strangers every day, um, it takes a certain kind of person to do that. You gotta love it. I think that's what I've been hearing all these years is that, yeah, there's some people that are just born for it. It seems like, like they just have yeah. that skill they They love it. It's their thing. And then, you know, then you got everybody else who's kind of like, well, it sounds like fun <laughs> until you have yeah. a day, you know, whatever. But yeah, no, I hear you. I think it's awesome. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I, I think, uh, please take this the right way. But, um, when I was first getting started, uh, you know, fishing, you know, a guide was a real luxury. It wasn't something, it wasn't someone you depended on to help you catch your fish. And you learned by the seat of your pants and you learned, you know, high water and low water and good days. And, and, you know, you learn the hatches and so forth. I mean, 30 years ago, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have found you a guide in the Catskills. You know, today, everybody, everybody I meet is a guide. Uh, now, you know, part of that is people with, you know, they want to come up, they want to maximize their time. And, and this is true of anywhere. They want to maximize their time. They want to catch fish. That's all it is to them. Um, so they get a guide and that's their best chance. And the guide's going to show them how to do it. And he's going to show them where the fish are and so forth. Um, what just shocks me is how many guides supply everything and right down to waders and tackle and everything. I can't imagine anything more tortuous to me than having to fish with somebody else's tackle. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like using somebody else's toothbrush. Right. You know, it's like, I mean, my tackle is set up that it works for me and, you know, here you're going to, you know, well, I can I see that. that. Yeah, no. And I can see that being good for somebody who, right, is brand new, right? They just got to, yeah, sure. You know, they never done it, but yeah, if you're sure. Yeah. And, and that's not who I'm talking about, no. you know, but if you, if you're an angler that, you know, um, and you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a guide to get, you know, to, to get a handle on, on things and, and nothing at all wrong with that. It's not what I'm saying, but to me, you know, the allure of fishing in general and trout fishing in particular is learning these things yourself and developing these skills. You know, it's like golfing and having the caddy hit all your, all the tee shots, you know, I mean, really, right. Yeah. He know. can pick your clubs, but that's about where yeah. you should leave it. Yeah. Good. Awesome, yeah, John. Well, this yeah. has been this has been yeah. good. I think we'll probably uh, follow up with you at a later point to you know get an okay, update. But good. because we we talked on it, we talked about a couple of quick catches, but I know we left a lot on the table there. So um, yeah, I appreciate all the time today and shedding light on the cat skills. This has been a lot of fun, and we'll keep in touch and yeah. talk to you soon. Yeah, it's been fairly fairly wide ranging, Dave, and I I, I warned you that at the beginning. So, but yeah. it's been a pleasure, and um, yeah, I look forward to talking to you again. There it is, wetbyswing.com slash 455. 455, uh, that's where you got to go if you want to get some, uh, this is like after hours uh, party. Check it out and uh, check in there and see what we have going with the blog posts. I'm just going to leave a blank spot really quick here for insert your favorite music. 
I can't get this out of my head. Um, we had uh, an episode um, with Greg Labonte from the main Fly Guys, and I asked him what music um, he loved, and he said Queen, no questions. And ever since then, it kind of was like Queen. Okay, everybody knows about Queen, but um, I haven't been able to get one of the songs out of my head is uh, Find Somebody to Love. So uh, I'm going to insert your own music here, but if you want, again, uh, I just uh, I don't know why it's one of those songs that's just stuck, but insert your favorite music here, and we'll play it out on the outro here. And then also love uh, to hear from you if you've got a question I can ask our next guest. Check in with me, Dave, at wetflyswing.com. I'd love to hear from you right now. We're going to do a, for the first time on this, we're going to do a double listener shout-out, uh, Dale Cullum. Dale uh, reached out, and uh, we gave him a shout-out recently, but also, I missed it. He replied um, back and noted, and he noted that he was hoping to get a shout-out to some of his buddies. All right, here's here's what Dale says here. He said, just finished the Great Lakes number two episode this morning. Good stuff. Uh, and Dale said, I wouldn't uh, mind the shout-out at all. Can you also uh, give a shout-out to my fishing crew from back home? This is Salmon RMBC, Fish for Brains. Fish for Brains. We're giving a shout-out right now. I fish um, a few of them, listen as well, and it would be a hoot for them to hear that. There we go. So Fish for Brains, I'm not sure if that's a... Uh, a YouTube channel, if that's just your name, or if you got a website or something going on there, but I, I do like that fish for brains. That sounds pretty, uh, sounds about right, I think. So, uh, and Dale said, "Have a great day." All right, Dale, there you go, man. Double, double shout out. I think um, in a, a close proximity. So definitely appreciate you and the fish for brains crews for listening to the podcast. I uh, hope uh, those guys or those crew or those people get a chance to uh, check out this episode. All right, if you want to get a shout-out, you can do it anytime. Send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, and, uh, or check in on social, and just let me know you're listening and uh, what you're enjoying about the show, and I will give you a shout-out on this podcast. All right, let's take a look where we're heading next, and then we will bust out of here into the late into the late night here, and let's see what we got going right now. Um, oh, yeah, we got some good stuff. So we're going to swing right back around with a quick little Ask a Pro episode tomorrow. A little Alaska, and then we're going to be dropping in uh, as we take it out the week with Craig Richardson, which we've noted before. Craig brings the Euro goodness, and then uh, and then next week uh, we are going to be jumping in. We got another Great Lakes episode, I believe. It's scheduled to be on, and I and I think Jeff has uh, has sent the new audio. This will be uh, the number two segment of the Steelhead Step by Step, which I know people were loving number one. So this is the second one in that series. And I hope you enjoy that one. I am always excited to see when Jeff uh, Liskey gets another episode coming out on the Great Lakes Dude podcast. All right, that's where I'm going to leave it right now. We've got some good stuff going this this year, uh, this week, this month. Um, and I hope uh, you could definitely uh, connect with me online or on the water. If you can check out the trip, we got it going on right now. Um, I believe there's still some slots open, wetflyswing.com slash school best chance to find out if that skiing school is open still if we have any availability and i hope to catch up with you maybe like we said maybe on the water but i hope you are having a great evening great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are and i appreciate you for stopping in today and checking out the show thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com